I just, I don't know where to start. Um, guys, we've been talking to Dr. Ayuka Nurse for just a few minutes now. And like, I knew I was going to be humbled. Justin knew he was going to be humbled, but we're already sitting here like, oh, you are so cool. You are so cool. So <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy to be here. And I just wanted to say the, the way that you reached out to me that I, there was no way I was going to say, no, I know we have some scheduling conflicts, but I wanted to make sure that I make myself available um, to you and to what you're doing. And I'm just happy to be here. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I told Justin how excited I was when I discovered your dissertation. And I was like, I never like cold turkey email LinkedIn DM anybody but I was like I just maybe she'll see it and if she doesn't I'll live but I'll be upset at myself if I don't at least try so yeah when you answered I, I'm not gonna lie I've been talking to people about this for a long time like I'm like <laughs> you guys don't know who we're gonna have on the podcast <laughs> well I I'm so happy and it's um it's also refreshing because I've been in that position before and I, I know the feeling. So, you know, just let me know what it is that you want to discuss and how you want to approach it. And I'm just going to go along for the ride. So hey, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, we're really excited to have you as like towards the start of our season two recording. Um, we've done some like pre-recording stuff, but I think we'll consider this our season two opener. And for season two, like season one was phenomenal. We had so much range in our guests, um, but for season two, we wanted to like focus on the most critical perspectives on cannabis politics, to put it simply. Um, so lots of our guests, including yourself, um, you know, are engaged in radical black tradition, are, you know, out there saying things and doing the work in terms of like really dissecting what's happening because we see Biden talking about weed and like things have just changed so much. Like I feel like in the last few years, but also they haven't changed. So we're just excited to get into this with you. Um, I do have a bio. It's really loose, really sketchy. So, you know, please feel free to correct edit as you go. And Justin can like chop and screw this later because he's great okay. with all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, so yeah, Dr. Nurse is the chair of the city of Richmond, California's cannabis subcommittee. She has a PhD in public policy and administration from Walden University and is a law and policy analyst. She also is in public radio, which we just found out recently, and has contributed to major artists such as Bone Thugs and Harmony um, from a young age, you being a, a, a child prodigy, as you referred to earlier. So we're just super excited to have you on here, but kind of wanted to get started with just talking about what are, what are the current issues happening with cannabis policy? Because... Weed is important to all of us. Um, and, you know, as as two black scientists, we, we see it's a part of the culture, like in terms of just like, I don't know, 
music, how we navigate the world, like we're talking about it all the time. It's part of our lifestyles. But also we see a lot of things happening with research and development and cannabis is coming an intellectual topic for a lot of people to study. So to have you to have you on here is just amazing. So I guess could you just give us a rundown of some of the most um, pressing issues that are happening right now? Um, but yeah. Well, cannabis, <clears throat> because of the history of cannabis, we are really paying attention to where the government is going, both on the state, local, and federal level. So there, there, there's issues that they have in common, and then there's separate, separate issues. So I'll kind of, you know, try and break it down the best that I can. And the one thing um, that you had mentioned is it is a part of popular culture, and with the history of cannabis, it has always been that way. So if you go back to the United States, even before it was the United States and it was territories, cannabis played a really important role in the economy, even used as currency. And when the issue arose of the United States wanting to become this strong power in trade and and rival, you know, British trade, um, they decided to start producing cotton. And once the production of cotton came about, they can produce more of it with more manpower. So that was um, the influx in, in using slave labor to produce can to produce cotton. So as we know, cannabis has a season; it has two seasons. Cannabis has uh, um, cotton has about eight. So you can you can reproduce, and, and it really built up the American economy. And it also funded a lot of the huge corporations that still exist today. DuPont, Johnson & Johnson. Um, that's why when we look at the current federal laws that are passing, really have to do with the research. And that research is really being done to benefit huge pharmaceutical companies and beverage companies. So we have to we have to look at that and then look at the the laws that that support those different things. So we have research, but then you have only six to five to six companies that are allowed to get the government grants to do the research. So that's closed down. Then you have a limited limited number of universities who are able to. Um, really conduct research. So some universities have found a way around it and they're doing really amazing things with hemp and hemp fiber. So you have Aggie Life, um, Texas A&M, that have, they have an amazing program. And the only reason why I mention them is because I just toured their facility a few months ago. Um, so there's a lot of information behind there, but my focus is on the legality of it and how the legal or the declassification of cannabis, how that is becoming a divisive tool to put owners in a position where they have to be responsible for paying the taxes on a local state. And they do pay federal taxes as well, although it's not legal or declassified. But they also are being charged with, so let's say, for example, if the Moore Act would have passed, 
one of the issues with the Moore Act is that they're going to collect money from owners to fund programs to expunge records related to cannabis. That is a state issue. That there's no other industry where you are responsible for what someone else does in, in that sense. You know, or you have to give extra money. You already pay taxes. So, and the reason why I bring that up, it doesn't matter where anyone stands with that issue of whether or not ownership pay more. But when I look at policies and I analyze policies, I I look back at what I call monumental laws that have already passed. And if you have, if you look at the New Deal, the Civil Rights Act, and then the war on drugs, all of those had what I call great compromises, where it's usually um, disadvantaged communities, the black community that are left holding the bag. For example, with the New Deal, the New Deal was, I mean, it was something that was supposed to restore the economy after the Great Depression. But in order to rally the vote from Southern liberal Democrats, Southern, we're talking about liberals here, they had to remove protections for domestic workers and farmers. And during that time, most of the domestic workers and farmers were Black. What's holding up cannabis legislation now is a lot of the equity language. It's not surprising that the Senate won't pass an act like the Moore Act because of how it impacts commerce. But whatever their excuse is, most people, and I shouldn't say most people, but I can say most lobbying dollars go towards lobbying the support from mostly Republicans. And so it, and it's it's not we we make it feel like we make it seem like it's a bipartisan issue. Now there's blame on both sides. I don't let either side get away with um, with their different tactics. Mm-hmm. But the lobbying dollars for cannabis legalization is more focused on taxation, the banking industry, and it's not with equity. And so my argument has always been: Is there a place for equity? in the private industry or should it come from the state or the federal level? And we're, we're thinking about these different laws and these different policies and how they're being beneficial and how they're promoted as being beneficial. And the black face is used to promote it. The black plight is used to promote, but it's not, leading into any tangible ownership are inclusion. And there is a pattern of that. And the pattern, um, the pattern is racialization. And we'll just focus on cannabis, but the pattern is racialization. And this is what we have seen for, for the past, you know, 10 or 15 years is that legalizing, um, illegalizing cannabis first for medicinal and now for recreational is to make amends for the wrongs that were done during the war, committed in the Black communities during the war on drugs. And this is going to remedy the situation. They um, 
they always put that in the forefront, but their dollars tell a different story. Their dollars, they, they use the racialization part to, to garner support for, for legalization and for declassification. Then they commodify and that, and commodification means that the black, the black face becomes the pinnacle of marketing. And then predatory mm. inclusion, I compare the equity programs that are across the country that related to cannabis and they, they have failed. They haven't resulted in any. Oh, did I blank out again? Because now I can kind of um, get my thoughts um, together and be a little bit more clear. So what what I do as an as a policy analyst is look at the popular culture and, and different things that are occurring that impact popular culture. And cannabis happens to be one of one of the really hot issues right now. And what we were talking about is how to look at the patterns of uh, of, of racial capitalism and what racial capitalism, I should start off by explaining what racial capitalism is first. It's a process of deriving values from others' identity and it harms or affects the, the individual. And I base that definition off of Cedric Robinson. He's actually the, the foundation for the dissertation that I, I did. And Cedric Robinson, he wrote a book called The Black the black radical and and, and it it talks a lot about marxism but not in the sense where it's um a a marxist movement he's actually very critical of the marxist movement and and is because if you think about it it was there was a lot of um division based on on race his main takeaway or the main takeaway from his book is that black people should have um, should be recognized for their contribution to the labor force mm. in building this country. And mm. he says that it's going to take a radical act and that radical act is it, not going out tearing up things. It's a different way of thinking and a different way of approaching things. And so mm-hmm. my radical way of approaching cannabis and applying the theory of racial capitalism is to question these different policies that are promoted as being beneficial, but end up having a detrimental impact on, and it's not just black people, it's, it's people who are marginalized, people who can be used as pawns. And, you know, as we talked earlier on about compromises, is who can we sacrifice in order to garner support to get this law, um, to get this law passed? Who do we need to prop up in order to get the community to say, this is what we want and this is best for us. And once those policies are put into place, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen a systematic impact and decline of black communities throughout the whole entire country. And cannabis is no different. We touched a little bit about the history of cannabis. So 
cannabis used to be the United States friend. It wasn't illegal. It was actually encouraged. Farmers were encouraged to produce hemp products and they didn't have to worry about the psychoactive effects, you know, still in it because they would take it and create some of the products that you see today. They even used it as currency. But again, when the United States wanted to go into a different direction, they started to go to these farmers and penalize them. The first penalty was uh, the Marijuana Tax Act. Then criminalization, you see different propaganda campaigns that come about um, that show, uh, like one of the, the biggest ones is Reefer Madness, which is just, mm. it's, it's a complete comedy right now, if you mm. look at it. But I actually did like, uh, well, I guess it's somewhat of a, somewhat of a preface. Um, uh, I did read a bit of your paper and I did get to the reefer madness part and I actually looked up the IMDB entry of it and geez. Yeah. It's a, it's a trip. It's a, it's really, <laughs> but those were campaigns that worked. Mm-hmm. So you start to, you start to take, hardworking individuals that didn't have a problem with um, with its use, whatever way they used it. It wasn't an issue until the government wanted them to stop growing it. So mm-hmm. they had to change the perception. Um, then we moved into, I just skipped over a lot of stuff, but when it mm-hmm. comes down to the classification of, of cannabis as an illicit drug, then the war on drugs, depending on what the need of the country's elite is, that is the direction of the legality of cannabis. And we have seen Mm. that pattern over and over and over again. And Mm. the pattern again is you, it's the racialization, because even back when the propaganda campaign came up for Reefer Madness, they put in there that, you know, black men and and brown men who use it they're gonna go out and rape white women i mean that is what this picture shows so um it was an effective campaign but if we fast forward to today the same tactics are being used but the message is just different how i don't know if you guys have ever gone to any type of cannabis event, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the level of dis... And I, I might upset some people when I say this, but this is okay because everything is everything that I say or what I work on, I want it to evoke a discussion, a conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm even open to change my opinion a little bit. I I'm open for people to... Just have that discussion, tear up what I say. I'll learn something new from it as well. But when you go to these events, you always see packaging with caricatures of, of a black Rasta or mm-hmm. street um, type of graffiti font on it. To me, that is um, it's, it's totally disrespectful because mm-hmm. one, the the significance of the plant, which you all know more about, it shouldn't be adulterated in that kind of way, Mm -hmm. but it takes away 
the not only the contributions going back to what Cedric Robinson said about blacks and their contribution to I mean basically built the US economy <clears throat> and has it in the position that it is today the same thing we're seeing in cannabis so when you go to these events it's hard pressed to find a black owner who has black investors and who has a successful business. It's easy mm-hmm. to find a black person who is put at the forefront to talk about equity and mm-hmm. legalization, but there is no true action behind making sure that these things come into place. The amount of ownership amongst black Americans in the because it's it's very important to, to distinguish it because in cannabis because people will say people of color there's an mm-hmm. representation of of Asians mm-hmm. um, the Latino community wow. they have they have resources that come from their own country for example a lot of the cannabis that goes into the Caribbean is imported from Latin America. Mm. So they're not being excluded as a group. Blacks mm-hmm. in America are being excluded. And the reason why I I learned how to separate, you know, saying black Americans, well for one, mm-hmm. it was we were definitely more adversely impacted by the war on drugs than any other mm-hmm. group of people. So it's important to differentiate our contribution and the impact that it had. But if I look at, if I just take my city as an example, there are more Chinese owners. It's not Asian because within the Asian community, Pacific Islanders are pretty much Mm -hmm. left out. But there's Mm -hmm. more Chinese owners in cultivation than any other group. There's one black owner, but he's an African national. So there are no black mm. owners in the city of Richmond. Not one. Mm. Not one. Mm. If we look at Oakland and San Francisco, now they have had some success with their equity programs, but what happens, the way that they are, the intent, and I, I don't I don't want to make it seem like there's some huge conspiracy. No, I think the intent is there for the industry to do well and to do good and and to help the community. But because they have to operate with such stringent regulations and laws that they make it so difficult, so it's hard to navigate the, the cannabis industry, it really puts equity applicants at a disadvantage. And then they, that, whole predatory inclusion that I mentioned, as soon as the city opens up an equity program, investors flock to find that black face, someone mm-hmm. who, who fits the criteria, and mm-hmm. they bring them on as an applicant. <laughs> so many, and I, I don't mean to chuckle about it because it's kind of it's kind of sad considering the people who worked on this equity program, their intent was to increase ownership. Mm-hmm. But what the investors do is they come on board and they take full advantage of the applicant. And then once the application is granted or the equity status is granted, 
they find ways of moving that applicant out of the way and maintaining the license. Wow. So it might look on paper that eight equity applicants received the license, but if you look a year later or two years later, they don't hold that license anymore. Wow. They either Mm. get paid out. Some of the ways that the investors do it is they'll stop giving them money for products. Mm -hmm. Another way they'll do it is they'll offer them $250,000 and they'll buy them out. Wow. Another Mm. thing that is happening throughout throughout the country, really, is the smash and grabs. And these started occurring during COVID. And these are structured. I mean, they are so well-planned hits on... A lot of the equity. Well, I, I bring. I'm going to bring up equity and focus on different mm-hmm. um, equity stores because once they are, once they get robbed, they can't recover. Because mm. you. Have so when to- you say smash and grab, are you are you referring to what these companies are doing to you know these black individuals who are trying to you know establish or you know. A, finished their application or just finished their application mm-hmm. and maybe got like an investment? Like, is that what you mean? Well, smash well the grabs? smash and grabs are actually robberies. So oh, you don't have quite like, literally, literally <laughs> smashing and grabs. Okay. The MO, it's, it's crazy. The MO is they come in luxury cars. So similar to what we saw across the country when they were doing the smash and grabs, the jewelry yeah. store. Yeah. thing is going on in cannabis. There was just one last week in um, Santa Rosa. It's happened in in Richmond and <laughs> an, another an interesting um, policy that's come about because of that is Gavin Newsom just did an executive order increasing the number of marshals and just law enforcement. But the problem with that is in LA <laughs> you see all of these um, cultivation sites being raided and it's really impacting the, I call it the informal market. So you have the Mm -hmm. formal market. Those are the ones who have the licenses. Then you have the informal market. You have those that don't want to be in the legal market because it's more lucrative to work underground. You have those, sorry. You have those that can't go into the legal market, um, which is what I would like to focus on, those who can't go into the legal market because they've been arrested. Mm-hmm. And if you've been arrested you and you haven't had your record expunged, you can't get a license. Mm-hmm. So the informal market is flourishing right now. They make about eight times, some would say 10 times, as much profit than a legal entity, then they don't have to pay taxes. They don't have to pay for inspections. So if, if my state is paying more money for law enforcement, you can imagine what is about to happen in the informal market. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't a discussion about how to bring the informal market and, and make it, um, you know, make it to where they would want to become formal. No, mm-hmm. instead of that, you know, here's a, we have to look at how much money is behind 
arresting people and using probable cause to pull people over, those are things that have not changed. It has not changed. Black people in California, and and the numbers really don't differ, are still three to four times more likely to be pulled over and arrested for possession, even in states where it's legal. Still in California, you know, as liberal as we are, Blacks are still arrested at four times the rate. When you look at um, who's being pulled over, probable cause is still, you know, if they smell it, but you can smell it anywhere, (laughs) you know, but they smell it. They can pull you over. Mm -hmm. So those things really haven't changed. They have not gotten better, but we still look at and say legalization, legalization. What does that mean? What does that look like for those who have been on both sides? Because really nothing has changed for those who have sacrificed the most. So that is one of the bigger issues, especially with the MORE Act. I think that's where I started off, but the MORE Act, if it, if it gets voted in, I don't know if it's even going to come back because it's a new session, but that was mm-hmm. the, that was the bill that um, the cannabis community was really, you know, pushing for, but there's problems with it too. <laughs> so we have to be careful of what we, we ask for. And another thing about legalization, and I don't think the industry or the public understands is that cannabis is illegal worldwide. Mm-hmm. It is considered a dr- an illicit drug. All of the NATO countries, except for five, want to legalize cannabis. Wow. And the United States is not one of them. Mm. So they're telling us one thing, but when the nations get together and talk about cannabis... Mm-hmm. They're doing something totally different. So let's say the United States says, we're going to declassify cannabis in the United States. They can't do that because then you have to start looking at import, export, and then your relationship with other countries who don't want to um, decriminalize or declassify cannabis. So it's an international issue and it's like in my dissertation i called cannabis outside of of the united states because it's really impacting black nations you know i call it the new colonialization because you see the same pattern of exclusion in Mm. barbados jamaica antigua and barbuda all of these countries who have declassified um, cannabis in, in some form or decriminalized cannabis in some form you see the same arrests, more arrests no change wow. um, ownership all white are, are, um, are from different countries but not local it's the same mm. pattern so I just find it really interesting that here in America our politicians will will um, they'll use legalization legalization as a as a platform 
to bring in voters, but they know, they know the likelihood, they know the ramifications. And again, going back to what I said about other monumented laws and times in our lives, those compromises have always, always excluded those who are more the most marginalized and the most disadvantaged because they're really pawns. You know, if if you want to bring in the Republican vote from the Senate, you're going to have to cut out certain things. I don't think it should be that way, mm-hmm. but I think people should be more vocal about what's really going on because mm. from the outside in, the public really thinks that we're moving and we're going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And unfortunately, and I, I don't like to see it. And <clears throat> I still work, try and work with equity programs and support equity, but in a realistic way. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. you look at the definition of equity, which is fairness, mm-hmm. but you apply it to capitalism, Two don't mix. Which is an unfair system. Yeah. It can't exist. You know, capitalism and its definition, because that's one of the things that Cedric Robinson attacks in his book, mm-hmm. um, different economic systems. But capitalism on its surface, oh, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. Capitalism on the surface is mm-hmm. fair. Just think if we were free to just go make money and spend money and build a business and wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I'm going to start that landscaping business. I don't care what business you're in, whether it involves alcohol, um, cannabis, or like I said, building a landscaping business, a car wash, Mm -hmm. still have Mm -hmm. regulations. You still have to abide by certain, certain rules. But capitalism on itself and having a, a free economy is not dangerous. But when you add the tenets of white supremacy and that it's only beneficial to the elite and no one else can get a pass unless mm-hmm. you're invited in. I don't know how to do it. I'm not there yet. Don't want to be there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you... Um, you have to really question whether or not it can you can you have that conversation about an industry and include equity i i think that in order for equity to exist it has to come from it has to start i think at an organic level i i don't know i i am open for suggestions i don't know but I know in the in a sense of of an industry and a mm-hmm. for profit industry, I don't know if equity can exist. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great point because it's like uh okay, you said a lot here, but um I guess one piece is the going back to what you were saying about um like on the surface, like things kind of seeming like fair as far as like you know the rules and the regulations in the industry and such um and then you know your last question about like you know can things like really be fair like i think all the things you've touched on like really you know really do like 
you like bite into that because these individual pieces of like um you know requiring you know these permits for operation um you know these uh you know the owners of like the legal industry wanting to like like you know reduce the impact of like the illegal um the like kind of illegal markets and like but in practice when they actually you know apply things like you know increase like policing or you know you have like the you know the like when applying for a permit you know is you no know, difficult because like the for the financial barriers or the um i think uh, you've also you know mentioned like how um you know if you have like felony charges on your record um how like that prevents access and like how these things like will disproportionately affect you know black people people of color like when you try to apply these like seemingly fair ideas of just like permits or you know kind of um reducing like you know the illegal role of like the illegal industry these things still end up disproportionately harming uh black people and other minorities right. so it's like how so it's like yeah how do we kind of like how do things actually end up being fair like in practice when it's like there are these other when like when you look at these individual pieces like there's still you know very strong like kind of mm -hmm. racial components to it yeah I'll, I'll give you an example on a micro level just to show that it can be done it can be fixed but i think more attention should be brought to it i won't name the grant but i will say that it is a state grant that goes to local municipalities, local cities, to fund equity, cannabis equity programs. So social equity programs. So it's a, it's a, it's a grant. I, I can tell you all what it is, but <laughs> they is, they, they um, give out or they issue millions of dollars to cities. My city just got a $1.5 million grant for equity. Mm -hmm. You would think that you could take a portion of that money and help fund expungement programs, which are on a county level, mm -hmm. and work with mm -hmm. the local district attorney to help fund a program to start expunging records for those who are in the informal market so they can come over into the formal market, but it doesn't. The expungement language of this grant says that they will only, you can only use the grant funds to for expungement. If that person, and I, I'm chuckling because it's, it's, it's such a conflict. So the only way that you can use it is if that person already works at a cannabis business and the owner submits a request for the expungement process to happen. Oh my. Why that's an issue is you can't even work at a cannabis place if you have a record. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to make it seem as if there's something, there's a line item in there to help with expungement, but really none of that money is going towards expungement. So how is that mm. an effective equity program 
Mm. And they'll put it back on the owner. And then the owner will say, well, I can't hire anyone with a record. So therefore I can't submit anything to the city for you to expunge this employee's record. So they're offering $1.5 million towards equity for, for this one city. And it's not going to go towards things. Because listen, even if you're not going into cannabis, if you have a record, you you lose your license. You can't, if you can't have, if you don't have a license, you can't get a job. If you have any infraction on your record, it's hard to get a job. You know, there's a stigma associated with it. It's all the perceptions that are associated with it. So you think if you have $1.5 million that's given to a city where the vast majority of the Black population was adversely impacted by the war on drugs, if you wanted to have an effective program, wouldn't you first start with clearing someone's record so they can go and get a job and take care of their families? Mm-hmm. So these are the examples, and I don't think there is enough of a discussion, and there's not anyone bold enough, um, because in my city, people are too busy trying to figure out who's going to get a piece of the $1.5 million and not mm-hmm. the theme of it, the intent of it. But again, even if your intent is there, if the restrictions for that 1.5 million grant that comes from the state tells you that you can't use it for specific programs that would increase um, wealth in the economically deprived community, then you have to start questioning, well, what is this money really for and who is it going to? Right. And those are things that... Um, that I see over and over and over. And this grant funding source is pretty much funded almost every major city that asks for the additional funding. And it's, it's not, it's not equaling again. We question why is the ownership so low over the past 10 years? It hasn't changed. It's staggered between two to 4%. And, and we question well, why can't, and then it's always, well, you know, well, maybe it's what the applicant is doing and they can't get, you know, financial backing. Mm-hmm. If you're in California, you have to come, you have to come to the table with at least $2 million. Wow. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's like you have to have, uh, you actually have to have like a lease or mortgage, like for the property that you're going to be operating out of, right? You Which are, is like, yes. okay, yeah, I'll just, let me just go ahead and like, get my mortgage in california before i start my business here right and so you think about think about a black because i know what the perception people have of me when i walk into a room or whatever they don't know my background i i love it i i I laugh at all the time but it's it's also hurtful at some times too so imagine me as a black woman i've i've grew up in the same community that i i live in today I still have a hard time going into Wells Fargo accessing my own money. They wouldn't even give me a home loan. I had to go to another financial source to do it. There are different levels of racism that 
people are not discussing how it's going to impact black people as they enter into the cannabis industry. The point that you just made about requiring, and most cities do, requiring you to have a lease agreement before you were eligible for that local that local permit is another way to control who's allowed into the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard enough for black people to to rent, let alone go and get a commercial contract. Cause soon as that and this is across the board, no matter who you are, as soon as you find a place to rent and they find out it's for cannabis, it's automatically a thirty percent hike. Mm-hmm. It's already a 30% hike, but I have to, it, I, I, I've been hard on a lot of the cities, but I have to give it to a city, give credit to a city in California. It's called Tracy. And mm-hmm. I, I actually helped two of the activists go before city council. And before they rolled out their ordinance, they removed that requirement. You, mm-hmm. They give you a certain amount of time after your initial application to then go and take that pre-approval. So when you go to look for um, a place to lease, it you have that. And that was half of the battle. That was kind of tough getting them to do it. But mm-hmm. once, once we presented to them um, the barriers that applicants face across the board when it comes down to leasing property, but it's kind of... Um, it's it's so difficult to navigate this cannabis industry in the climate that we're already in where there's the there's racism that you can pay attention attention to and then there's racism that you can kind of but not being able to go into a bank or to lease an apartment. Those are still racial issues that we have not dealt with in this country at all. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult, but it also dates back. It also goes back to some of those policies that I was talking about that stemmed from the new deal. And, and those were HUD policies, urban housing development. And that just goes on to, uh, <laughs> to a whole different diatribe. And then, I relate it back to cannabis, but a lot of the programs that were established, the federal programs created redlining and we experience redlining in our communities now, but it hasn't escaped the cannabis industry. It hasn't escaped the cannabis industry. I know another, another city where there's one black owner out of nine and the way that he was able to obtain his license was that he had to acquire it from someone who already had a license because the city would not deal with him. Mm. It was it would have been a waste of time. Well, the way that he describes it. So there's there's a lot of issues when it comes down to cannabis regulations, cannabis policies, cannabis laws. Which, and the way that there's no, so the laws are are created, as you know, and the policies are the things that guide the law. So my hope and my desire in in speaking out is to change the policy first and impact the law later. And so when 
there is a federal law, we don't have to ha- we don't have a repeat of what's going on at the local and state level. And mm-hmm. some states are learning. I, I'm I'm really interested in what New Jersey has going on. They kind of <laughs> New Jersey surprised me. I received a copy of um, their application or their um, their ordinance. So here in California, we're allowed to have one ounce on our person at a mm-hmm. time or purchase one ounce. And New Jersey mm-hmm. is six. And I said, what are they setting up with this? It's scary, mm-hmm. but it's also interesting. You can have up to six ounces on you. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm like, did I read this right? <laughs> so I don't know if it's, the, it's just a proposed law, but again, with stop and frisk, how is that going to work? Yeah, I think that like that pattern that like of just you know the way you just described that last piece, like that pattern of just like okay, here's this like generally innocent intention of like this policy change that we're gonna make for the like, cannabis industry, but then it's like you know when you actually kind of get into hood, it's like okay, well here are these other like you know contributing like you know sociological factors or whatever that actually will kind of muck this up or like kind of get in the way here and it's just like it just feels like you know we're just constantly running into those sort of roadblocks and it's just like i don't know it's just you know it just speaks to your question of like how how does this actually get kind of pulled off like it just seems like there's just there's just so many like just interconnecting like just barriers that are hard to just address and yeah you see this is why we had to get critical with it because (laughs) there's so much happening in terms of policy there's so much hype there's so much positivity in terms of like the perspectives of like how how weed is going to change over the years but if we don't actually get at the root of things aka get radical with it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) like we we're not gonna we're not gonna know what's actually happening we're not gonna understand that you know the same black men are gonna get locked up but then you know we're gonna see all their black faces on a bunch of cute little rappers that are made by johnson and johnson in the future when they're allowed to sell out of their you know (laughs) when they can sell out of their dispensaries and just think of just think of all of the mom and pop they they predict about 70 to 75 percent of the cannabis industry is going to just disappear fail once large pharmaceutical companies the beverage companies they already have their think tanks they already have their researchers and they're just going to wipe out all of what you see now so that's why it's important for them to start and stop stop looking at these owners that are around now stop trying to have moratoriums placed on the number of retail or cultivation because you think it's going to impact your bottom line start figuring out ways to um solidify yourself and and make yourself a part of the community that you serve so when these larger corporations come about I mean, I, they, they love the disconnect between the cannabis industry and the community at this point because they're going to come mm. in and they're going to popularize it. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be able to walk into your local store and, and purchase the eighth. You're not going to need the dispensaries at some point um, anymore. We've mm. seen the same thing with alcohol, the same thing with with cigarettes. And why should we think that uh, cannabis at some point is going to, to be different? But like I said, where I would be very cautious is the international implications of allowing cannabis. That, is, that to me is, is really important. And I don't think too much, um, too much is on that. But we have mentioned barriers and roadblocks. So if you're driving down the street and you know that a street is closed off, you find out a different route, right? <laughs> you find out a different way to get there. One of the major takeaways from the dissertation um, that I that I did is the people that I <clears throat> that were a part of um, that were a part of um, the research. They were at different levels of completing an application. So some had already completed applications, some were in the process, some just had an interest and and their level of education and experience was across the board. You know, master's degree, some were already business owners. And in this community, these this group of black people, I mean just upwardly mobile, really smart, you had cultivators. Mm. I mean, they're just brilliant. I, I I love to talk to cultivators, but um, master growers. Mm-hmm. Shout out to master growers. They're, they're <laughs> beautiful minds. I I just love it. But they didn't communicate with each other. Can you imagine if they pulled all their resources together? They were trying mm. to work individually because when. And I've experienced this, uh, you know, a lot. You'll have a group of people who are working towards, you know, obtaining a license or just making an impact in cannabis. You have an investor come in and split that group up. Mm, Yeah, divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. And they'll take the the one black face that they want out of it and continue on with them. So I can... I. I understand the mentality of, you know, this group of people who live in the same area and want the same thing, but there's no communication. There's no trust. Mm. There is, you know, oh, I don't want to go that route. Whatever reason that they had when we did the debriefing sessions um, after the dissertation was finished, they didn't want to meet. Some of them did, but the vast majority of them did not. And it's like, why don't you pull your resources together? You're in the same region. You want to open up the same type of um, cannabis shop. Why don't you join and pull your resources together? Hmm. That was a thought, but, you know, as of yet, it hasn't happened. And there's still not one Black owner in, in, in that area. So there's a there's blame and fingers to be pointed all the way around. I I don't <laughs> I don't leave anyone out of it. Um, but again, if you raise awareness and have a discussion around it, then you can start developing solutions, and then you can start letting people know. Well, you know, maybe you know, even though this this message is coming from you know a group that I normally agree with. 
Mm-hmm. Let's start dissecting this and, and, and seeing what they're really going after, seeing what the purpose really is. What is the outcome? Or do they even know what the outcome or have an expected mm-hmm. outcome? So that is um, that is just what I try and do with, with bringing up things and being critical, even if it's something that mm-hmm. I agree with. Be a little bit critical. Ask questions about it. Just because someone says it's going to bring money in and it's going mm-hmm. to be right or wrong, uh, that's not what the numbers are showing for the past ten years. Yeah, I, mm. I think that's I think that's right on the nose because, like, I mean, I know, um, I mean, before I've you know kind of started looking more into it, um, like I had this kind of same perception as I think what you kind of touched on is like the general perception of okay, when legalization happens, it's just like a net good, you know, it's the happy ending, everything, everybody goes off into the sunset and is able to like, you know, smoke their weed in peace and like (laughs) access is easier, you know, people are able to start business around it like freely, but it's like, no, all of a sudden when you start asking these questions, when you start bringing these up, when you start looking at the data of like ownership, um, it's like, okay, but like, what is this actually gonna look like? Like, how do we actually like, you know, make true on these promises that like we're trying to, you know, I guess make or when we're, you know, when legalizing cannabis gets framed as like mm-hmm. uh, atonement or whatever for like the war on drugs or like some kind of like, you know, positive. It's like, well, you know, it's not that simple because of, um, I mean, all the other, you know, capitalist forces and stuff and that we've yeah you've kind of already brought up and Mm -hmm. but yeah it's just like i don't know it's just yeah i think i said my face but what i would recommend is well what's the state of cannabis um in your in your area is it legal Mm. medicinal recreational uh i believe medicinal medicinal i would Go and get a card, follow rules, and smoke a little and try and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so it's it's huge. It's it's not so it's not a simple fix. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, oh, you were impacted by the war on drugs. We're gonna give you a license to, you know, open up a cannabis shop. No, that's not going because you you have the whole mind mentality that goes along with trauma, and that trauma carries on for generation to generation. I would like to see a lot of the money that is going to states, where states then give it to the city. If you really want to address the war on drugs and how that decimated black communities across this country put money towards the trauma that we still experience put the money behind making sure that people who want to go to work can go to work and it doesn't necessarily have to be in the cannabis industry trade programs like i tell somebody you, you'll make more money opening up a car wash than you would a retail cannabis shop. Mm. Because after the feds come in and take their portion, you're really left with nothing. 
without a profit. Mm. So if we can take what is going on now with cannabis and leverage it into other areas that promote Mm. economic growth, to me, that's equity. That's fairness. Not everybody wants to go into, you know, the cannabis industry. Uh, It's, it baffles me that there's millions of dollars that are being poured and funneled into equity programs, but they're so restrictive, just like going through the regular route of obtaining a license. It, it really is, it really is a farce. And we just have to start questioning um, what what's going on right in front of us. It, like we were saying, there hasn't been any real, <clears throat> real benefit. It hasn't been a real benefit. And here, here's an example. Where I live, there's a notorious housing. And I call it notorious because it has a history of just a lot of mess going on. It's called the Richmond Townhouses. And next to the Richmond townhouse, probably about 250 feet, it's a huge warehouse. It used to be a rug warehouse called Tradeway. Now, as you know, if you live in federal housing, if you smoke in your house, you can lose your Section 8 benefits. They can take away your federal housing. If you get arrested for possession, you can lose your federal housing. You literally do anything. You can lose your federal housing. So in this building, 250 feet away, my city allowed four licenses to be issued for cannabis cultivation. Wow. That looks really bad. Y'all setting us up. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) And that's why not everything that's promoted as being good is good. Mm. And Mm. some, some owners would argue that medicinal cannabis and the regulations and how it's regulated is much better than recreational recreational some would argue would argue Mm. make it more exclusive exclusive and more exclusionary to those who have tried to enter into the cannabis industry Mm. and it's been a lot more restrictive um so those are those are the takeaways and what it looks like and it, it's not all bleak. It's not all bleak. There has there has been some really um, really big strides made, but as we have seen throughout history, even the history of how cannabis got to where it is now in terms of the legality, that history has been distorted too. Depending on who you talk to, no credit is given to the many poor people who had to suffer and endure during the war on drugs. They want to highlight people who own restaurants and were selling out the back of their shop and arrested 23 times and never convicted. Mm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. If you if you look up the history of the can what they consider the cannabis history in California, mm-hmm. you'll know exactly what I'm what I'm talking about. Um, so even that history is being distorted, and black people are being left out of that history. I don't want to be used as 
the face of anything. I don't want to be used as a pawn to be a part of negotiations of what I can and cannot have and what I should have access to. Mm. And that's what we really need to start focusing on and questioning, questioning how many times are we going to be used, our story, our faith, our plight, everything, and get nothing for it. Mm. But again, this has been historical. This goes all the Mm. way back to the 1600s, even before then. Every century you can sit there and look and, and just... And I'm not saying cannabis caused it, but cannabis has always been in, in the mix. There's a lot of money to make off of cannabis, whether it's legal or not. So why should the government care? They just want their money. Mm. Yeah, like it's it's so it's so fickle. It's like you have or it's like you I guess like from the historical standpoint, it's like you have the the switched from like you know, like hemp or cannabis and hemp to cotton. And then like, but then it's like, I guess the modern example would be like, well, you can't smoke in your section eight housing, but there's a cannabis dispensary down the street. It's like, it's just whose needs are you suiting right. at the moment? It's like, and it, you know, just imagine someone as long as it's growing the economy, I guess. Yeah. You come out of your house and you smell, you smell the strong scent of cannabis and you can't even, <laughs> You, and not only can you not partake, you cannot work there either. Ooh. Whether or not you have a felony on your record, you can have a clean record. If you're receiving government housing, you can't work at a dispensary or a cultivation site. It's not federally Ooh. approved. Ooh. So it's, mm-hmm. it, it is really, really messy. And the other thing, and it's not just Richmond. Most of these areas that are building up cannabis as a, a tax revenue in their economically depressed cities, like Oakland, San Francisco, they are mm-hmm. using areas that were blighted, left blighted by the war on drugs mm-hmm. to bring in the this new industry that is supposed to help people who were impacted adversely by the war on drugs. No, you just got a really good tax break and a good deal on a piece of property that was left vacant and left, you know, and deserted by whoever the previous owners were and the city needed to sell it. So they said, okay, you're in the zone. Another thing that cities do when it comes down to zoning, Mm -hmm. they'll have strict zones, but when it's someone that comes in with money, they will redistrict the zone They'll rezone it for something else. So they'll make it available for some huge uh, cannabis Mm. investor. So you have cookies, you have, I name names. You have cookies, you have Mm. um, uh, power, power plant that's here in Richmond. You have nugs and these are huge companies with the, Mm. with a lot Mm. of money and they go into areas that were left blighted by the war on drugs and they clean up. Mm. for themselves not for the community mm. yeah yeah i said it <laughs> <laughs> it needed to be said it needed to be said well, it does because you know if these the same um companies that i named are except for power plant 
are also international as well. Wow. So cookies is international? Yeah. They are Ooh. negotiating, I don't know if it's formal or not, um, throughout the Caribbean. Yeah, they're international. Mm. They're international. But I bet you if they were approached in the right way um, about, because a lot of these companies, and I give them credit for it, a lot of them have their own self-imposed equity programs. Mm. They'll go, um, there's even different strands that the creators, they will go and find a master grower who's looking for an opportunity. So I don't want to make it seem like it's, you know, the industry is it's just all these big bags. No, it's the people who are creating the laws mm-hmm. and the policies are the ones that really need to be called um, to the to the to the carpet. Because again, this is the for profit industry. I, I cannot mm-hmm. be mad at someone who's making money in an industry that's for for profit. But in fairness, most of these companies have they saw a need and they imposed their own um equity programs outside of what the city has and you know what they've been a lot more successful they've been a lot more successful than following um the state and the city's programs Mm. yeah i think yeah that's great i think it's just it's unfortunate that like so much of i guess like these um, so much of like equity in like under capitalism comes from like just the goodwill of like owners, like, and there's not really anything like kind of structurally supporting it other than like, mm-hmm. okay, well maybe like, you know, you have a more open-minded, mm-hmm. more, I guess you could say like kind of tapped in, like, you know, person who takes it upon themselves to like, you know, implement their these equity policies into their own, like, into their own company. But it's just like, from a policy perspective, it's like you can't just rely on this. Exactly. Right. Right. And it's, and, and things, like I said, things are, are changing. And I think the more vocal we are, um, and just pointing out those things, you know, again, I look at the intent and the intent to do better is there. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes down to, creating regulations and the laws and the policies that guide guide them, they don't think about racialization, commodification, predatory inclusion. They don't look at that. They're not thinking about that. But if mm-hmm. we start to show what, what it looks like and to give solid examples of what racial capitalism, what it is and what it looks like, they'll start to get away from those different type of tactics mm-hmm. that propel it into, I, I mean, it's, it's just really, it's really a mess right now, but I'm still hopeful. I, I, I'm not, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, mm-hmm. I think cannabis has, there's a, if done correctly and if, we learn by the mistakes that have already been made and we take the best practices and and, and add on to that. Mm. Cannabis can wind up being a lifesaver, not just for the United States, but worldwide. Because as you all know, 
that plant is amazing. We're, if you just take the hemp from it, hemp fiber, charcoal, um, animal feed. And that's, I mean, that's just a small, small list. But that might go into why, you know, they don't want us to have so much control. Being able to, to grow it freely and use it the way that we want to, it may be, you know, maybe someone is afraid about not being able to inc- control a certain population. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, or that reminds me of, um, I guess, one of the, I guess, major, or one major kind of uh, thing that I, you know, kind of put together, um, not put together, but um, revelation from kind of reading more of your paper was uh, how the, the, the schedule one distinction under like the like controlled substance act, Mm -hmm. like that, that actually like kind of limited the ability for scientists to kind of look into the plant like medically and like, uh, or sorry, we're just from like a research perspective or gain access to, um, you know, the ability to like, you know, do research on the plant and kind of just touches on the note of like, you know, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm not like talking anything like conspiracy or anything, but it's just like, just there's so much stuff that just is linked here. Well, that, well, the good thing, I, I have to give the administration, um, and it was bipartisan uh, support for it, has increased the research um, behind it. And there, there's research dollars and grants out there for, for universities actually start their own and they've opened that up because before before that was just one university that was able to freely um explore the the cycle impact of thc and all that kind of stuff so Mm -hmm. that's the upside and anything at an academic or research level i think is important because it gives it it adds more credence to why why cannabis should should be legal, but it has to be done properly. It has to be done in order because as soon as it becomes legal, everybody is out. Everybody is out because the larger corporations are going to come in. Right? Mm. Yeah. And I I have a appointment coming up. So did you guys course, have any yeah. other questions or? Uh, yeah. We do have some questions, okay. but I'll let Renee. Yeah. So first off, thank you so much. I'm going to cut my camera back on. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was super, this is super informative. I'm glad. For sure. Um, But we have like our closing set of questions that we like to ask people. But first, like we just want to ask, are you comfortable disclosing your own experiences in cannabis? Because it's just a series of rapid fire questions to help us close out. And I think people will look forward to your answers. Oh, yeah. I So my experience in cannabis. So when I did the dissertation, I wanted to submerge myself. I needed to know about this industry. I actually went and got a consulting job. For research purposes. Exactly. Well, that too. <laughs> but you know how I, I... So, again, the trauma associated with the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. I grew up... I, I have family members, I mean, that were... I mean, I can go on and on and on, but I was the youngest of uh, youngest in my family, 
So I saw it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And so I never wanted to smoke. It's the gateway drug. And I went to Barbados wow. and I was living there. My husband's from Barbados. And there was a retired school teacher across the street. She could see that I was in pain. I had a stomach ache. And she called me a retired school teacher. She called me mm. over and she said, drink this. And normally, I mean, she's old, you know, she's my elder. So I drank it and I'm just like, you have to be kidding me. I've been taking all of this medication. Oh, geez. And so that one event changed my whole perception of, mm. of cannabis. So I was already open. But no, during my research, I went and, and I consulted for um for a firm and i i let them know that i was you know doing a a, um doing research and all that but i got a chance to actually see um and so if if i'm in charge of doing something i notice that question more about your abilities it's Mm -hmm. it's a lot but that's my experience my other experience is White people who are in cannabis, and not all of them, and not all of them, but in some cases, and these are the ones who like to use the caricatures, they don't understand that what they're doing is is racist. Hmm. They feel like they have a past because cannabis is attached to it and everybody who smokes is is cool. But I don't want to go to shows and I, I see this image and it doesn't really even fit with the target market. The target market, um, the fastest growing market in cannabis is elders. Mm. So let's start seeing them on packaging. Let's start seeing packaging that's geared towards them. I Yeah. So my grandmother is gonna be so excited to hear this. She's <laughs> a preacher who we the family recently transitioned her because the doctor gave her opioid medication for the, you know, the intense pain she has, and it was too much. So we transitioned to medical cannabis. And it's been something that I feel like it's been so much of a better transition at this point, she's not really taking anything. Right. So she, she was just like the difficulty that she's had with even like, being able to just walk into a dispensary and feel comfortable and have a good experience. Like, she, she's been listening to this podcast in order to learn more about it. So I just, I think she's going to appreciate hearing it from a Black woman, if anybody, at that. Well, like, thank you. Yes. And, well, in addition to that, my my mother two years ago was diagnosed with stage four endometrial cancer. And she's mm. a staunch religious woman. And that is what we treated her, especially during her last, her last um, few weeks it brought her great peace in in her transition and that was mm. another another thing that i witnessed with the i had a one of the owners um out here mr z haddish i talked to him and he goes i know exactly what you're going through and mm. he he told me about the dosing and just walked me through it and that was I mean, I'm not familiar with what that was like my being a part of a transition and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't know what to expect, but Mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't have had it any other way. And I don't think my mother 
was and she asked for it. It wasn't anything that I voluntarily did. Mm-hmm. She asked for it because she didn't want the medication. She mm-hmm. didn't want it. And and that's been my experience in in cannabis. I love the plant. I support the plant. I hate the policies. Mm. Mm. Smash that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing all of that. Um yeah, I think I think we're gonna close out here. Uh, is there anything? Is there any like, you know, like websites or social media or like any opportunities to connect with you that you want to share? Um, you know, to people who may be listening. Sure. So, um, if you want to know what I work on and what I do in the cannabis industry and outside of the cannabis industry, you can go to my website. Is iokanurse.com. And that's A-Y-O-K-A-N-U-R-S-E dot com. And I'm not too sure of, of who our audience is tonight, but one of one of the things that I would like to share is that knowledge is key. We hear things, we, we're always hearing buzzwords that make us feel good. And then on the other side, we're hearing things that divide us. You know, everything and everybody has a label, but it's all about compassion and loving one another. That's Mm. it. No matter what color you are, it doesn't matter. It's having compassion for a person and saying, if that was me, this is what I want to have done. And that's... Mm. And if that's the one takeaway, and then everybody go and read my dissertation and chop it up. I I want as much feedback as I possibly can get because my goal is to change things, to change it. Mm. And it's to be that change agent, not to be in charge, but to be a change agent amongst many. So I'm very proud of what you guys are doing. You're giving me flashbacks into, uh, oh, I, I had so much fun. Um, one of my first articles was Rappers as Teachers. And I took all these famous artists, artists and assigned them different classes. Um, so um, you guys are doing great work. Um, I'm glad this platform is, is around. And, and if you need me to come back, I'm available. Yes. Yes. I, I might need your mentorship in a few other things as well. <laughs> well that's, that's not- so hey, if I don't know it, I can find somebody else. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, Thank you. Don't be afraid. Enjoy the experience and, you know, mm-hmm. that's it. <laughs> and yeah, and for what it's worth, I can definitely say that uh, going through um, going through your dissertation definitely illuminated a lot of points for me as far as like the historical context behind the cannabis industry and like how we kind of went from like like you know the role in like early america and stuff like that and it was just a very it was a very good kind of picture being painted of like how we kind of got to where we are now as far as like the policy you know the attitudes toward cannabis and like the history of the policy and such like that so i really appreciate the opportunity to read through that yeah well thank you for having me um that was a great discussion and i look forward to hearing from you guys again if there's anything that i can help with or 
if you have any questions, um, or just reach out. Just reach out. I'm available. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck to you guys. Have a great weekend. Oh, you too. All right. You too. Let me ask, what what type of, you you guys are both scientists? Uh, So, I guess... I, I guess my day job is uh like software engineer like um it's more like engineering stuff like that okay um more like computer you know, science coding, stuff like that yeah um but i guess like you know this is sort of an an interest uh that we share but i'm not like a sociologist or anything oh no but so but your interest is, is in cannabis i was wondering if you worked yeah. with the plant or anything like like that I've no, started no. to. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I my I'm also an engineer, but I'm biomedical, so I'm more like into the sciences. But now I'm doing sociology of that. Uh-huh. And like I want like I want to continue my PhD, but I'm encouraged like I'm going through so many barriers that it's going to be rough. Right. But I did want to study black cannabis activism. And I started an internship like bud tending. <laughs> Like yeah. this year, like it was great. I love it. Like at this lounge if, that we have, uh, black owned. If you can pull their master grower to the side and partake with them, <laughs> I, I'm amazed. I, I sit there like, a, like just somebody in school still just, oh my God, are you serious? This is what this plant does? What? Is this how you grow it? Well, how do you get it to remain hemp and not just amazing? Uh, mm-hmm. It's just, and, and I'll keep you guys updated um, with some of the things that are going on and things that I might think you're interested in. And because you guys Yay. have a podcast and what you're doing, I would encourage you to look at some of these grant fundings mm. to get you guys through your, your daily stuff. Okay. Wait a minute. I love a grant. Well, because I I do a lot of grant writing too, because I I have a a hemp farm in Texas. And I have a hemp farm. Just just drop that in there. (laughs) I do. It's a family farm that's been, it's been in my family for, um, I'm just waiting until my other meeting come on. I got time. Um, Family farm. It rewrites history too. That's why I'm very careful with pointing Mm. fingers. So, my grandfather five times over he is a founder of this black town in leon county which is in the center of dallas and houston and in 1837 he purchased 200 acres i found the the um the patent the land patent it just Mm. retells history but because of that um someone gave me really good information and whenever that happens, I like to share it. She, um, I have reached out to her because I wanted to preserve a schoolhouse that was built 137 years ago, a schoolhouse and a church. And she said, don't do it under your business name, do it under a nonprofit. So I formed a nonprofit and I started looking at all these grants. I said, there's too much money out here for people not to know. And so the reason why I brought it up to you guys, I don't have it offhand. But if you go to grants.gov, and if it's something you guys are interested in, I wouldn't mind at all, you know, walking you through it or whatever, because I feel information is is power. Um, But if you just start looking and just do a search for um, 
because both of you guys are students and then use the university. The university can actually, if you can get their support, you can apply under them and start getting funding for your podcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I should go for it. That's definitely something we can look into. Yeah. Go for, for it. sure. Go for it. Go for it. And then when you're ready to write those proposals, I'll tell you how to do it in an easy way. Don't go the long way. Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, people you are usually, that's what, that's why people don't go for them because they think it's don't let anybody ever tell you that it's too hard to get to where you mm. want to go it's not there's a way around it i'll give you templates that i've already <laughs> wow well you, you know why i do that because when i was volunteering and i wasn't volunteering i was actually working um when cannabis applications first came out it was like a, a special field and I worked mm-hmm. at a company where they wouldn't give you a whole completed application. They would hide everything. Ugh. So that was one of the things that I noticed. And mm-hmm. I said, when I meet people who are trying to do something, I'm going to tell you how I got there. I'm going to tell you where to go so you can find the information. And then what you do with it is it's just between you and whoever. But I, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't try and hide any information. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But I say you guys should go for it and turn this because it's global. There's another podcast that's similar to this that's out of Canada. Mm. I, did, I did them. Uh, I've been on their show twice, and they're oh. talking about things here. No, no, sorry, not can't. No, one is from Canada. The other one is from Australia. Mm. And if you think the cannabis industry here is crazy, I look at Australia. Mm. I I know nothing about nothing. I mean, I yeah, when you started like, going global, I was yeah, like, you, oh, yeah. Like earlier, you were talking about like I guess on the note of like how like legalization looks. I mean, like you know, you touched on the international component too, talking about like the, the NATO countries, mm-hmm. like um, you know, and stuff like that. But yeah, I think that's definitely like one thing that I know I haven't really looked into is like the international. Um, you know, just outside of the U.S., just because, I mean, obviously, you know, that's where you live, you know, it's kind of where you're naturally going to point your eyes, but yeah, it's a... Uh, it's going to impact us. Watch. Massive. It, it really is, because I talked to the founder of the Black Farmers Foundation in South Africa, mm. and what they're afraid of is once it's legalized, in, or if it's illegalized in in the states, that it's going to increase um, slave labor, slave farm labor in places like South Africa. Mm. So it, I I have to give them credit that they're thinking that far ahead. So mm. they're limiting what they do and what they allow on uh, on land in, in South Africa. And then in other places as well, they're they're putting in heavy restrictions on what outsiders can do because they already know that the labor force is going to be taken advantage of if cannabis is ever legalized. So the global implications mm. are huge. Neocolonialism. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, that was a great comment. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. And with that, I think we're good.